Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back. Well, this From, time, it's not welcome back. You were there. <laughs> That's right. I was just about to say, for the first time, I had the honor and privilege of actually joining you in one of your escapades to Europe. And the feedback has been incredible of the trip. It was, it was quite something special. I mean, it's one thing sitting next to you every week, but it's another thing being with you um, live on site and together with Rabbi Zimmerman. It was, it was a phenomenal trip. Well, Lithuania tends to do that. Yeah, and weirdly enough, there's not much left, but you could still feel so much of the history yep. of that place. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, for all those wondering about the trips, the dynamic or why it was done, it was done to celebrate the year of the Jaili Evening Kodal success. And the guys came and some brought the family members and some donors of the Kodal, but it wasn't really publicized and there will be future trips in the future seeing that was such a successful pilot trip, and do email the journey if you'd like to join on the next one. So welcome back to the last of our five-part series on the Holocaust. This one is called Defying the Nazis. I just want to mention before you start that the feedback from the last episode has been unprecedented. The amount of downloads, I mean, it could be, obviously it's the content, but also the timing. Um, during the nine days, people are always looking to feel the Khorban more. And the fact that we've had over 3,000 downloads in the past seven days, believe it or not, shows how much of a role these podcasts are playing. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, think, I think if someone is looking for aspects relevant to the nine days, that this will uh, focus the mind. So today we have three accounts in all. The first starts in February 1943. The 6th German Army suffers a tremendous defeat in Stalingrad. There are hundreds of thousands of German prisoners of war and remnants of the army retreating west through Russia. And almost on the same day, a Jew called Ludwig Fleck is taken out of the Lvov ghetto on a passenger train, not a cattle car, and transported to Auschwitz. His admission into Auschwitz is recorded uh, as uh, prisoner number 100967, but he actually ends up not being as anonymous as his uh, ledger entry implies. He was a scientist, and by 1943, the Germans were under pressure not only from enemy fire and from, at the time, the brutal Russian winter, but also now in retreat there is the disease and epidemic that follows. And Fleck, being a microbiologist, had managed to create a form of typhus vaccine in a very poorly equipped lab in the Lvov ghetto. So he becomes a resource that the Nazis intend to use. Many Germans remembered that during the First World War, epidemics, specifically typhus, had been a killer. 
150,000 Serbian troops died of typhus in one year of the war alone. And between 1918 and 1922, typhus infected 30, maybe 40 million across Russia and Poland and ended the lives of probably 3 million. And outbreaks were common in the trenches and each flare-up leaves between 5 and 40% of its victims dead. With that amount of victims, were they not working round the clock to figure out a vaccine? You All mean the after, after World War One? Yeah. So, yes, they were, uh, but it's like COVID. I mean, we now know that a vaccine takes years. Um, so in the 1920s, there's a Lvov scientist called Dr. Rudolf Vegel, who inoculated lice with the typhus germ and did in fact produce a limited vaccine and this Dr. Ludwig Fleck had joined that lab as an assistant in 1919 but war broke out and by 1942 Fleck was imprisoned in the Lvov ghetto where typhus was rampant so he can't create proper sterile conditions but he has a vast supply of infected people and he starts looking for an antidote within the people themselves specifically actually in the urine of the people who are sick in august 42 he tests the vaccine on himself and eventually 500 jews in the ghetto would get the injection which was somewhat effective and news of his vaccine travels he is even to the nazis he is ordered to report to the local Gestapo headquarters with his uh, experiments. And he was questioned. As Fleck himself put it, some of the questions were not very intelligent. Uh, they ex asked if the vaccine would work for Aryans. And I said, of course, but it must be made from Aryan and not Jewish urine. Uh, because, you know, the, the race-obsessed Nazis would fully believe that. You know, they wouldn't have thought otherwise. Their their entire education was based that way. So you now have the SS medical chief, Gravitz, who is impatient for large-scale production of a vaccine, as was Himmler himself. So the Nazis decide to use uh, captive Jewish scientists, and they open a bacteriological institute in Auschwitz. To do so... During November and December of 42, the SS visits a number of Jewish ghettos looking for scientists and chemists. And, you know, therefore, normally being sent to Auschwitz is uh, an extreme fate. But in rare instances, it could almost be a stroke of good fortune. Because for Fleck, in the week before the SS began the final destruction of the Lvov ghetto. They visit him in the Jewish hospital and there is a sort of negotiation process. Uh, Fleck is offered a position, um, the alternative being death in the ghetto, and he accepts on the condition that his son, wife and close associates are included. And in the end, um, he gets what he wants. So there are three scientists' families um, who on the night of February, February 7th, um, including young children, arrive in Auschwitz and are kept alive, which is highly unusual, and they live with their mothers. 
although things then take a turn for the worse because after going to the trouble of bringing them to Auschwitz, camp officials allowed Fleck and his team members to be subjected to normal Auschwitz rules. They become exposed to typhus themselves and they barely survived. Why would they do that? Well, they bring him out and they almost killed him. So... You know, either they wanted to give him a taste of camp life to make him know that this is the alternative if he steps out of line, or, as mad as it sounds, the Nazis considered Fleck and his colleagues to be tools, not human beings. So, you know, the office is simply neglectful of them. You sometimes leave your, you know, your tools in the garden overnight and it rains. They also had a particular hatred, didn't they, of uh, Jews that were intellectuals and educated? Well, yes, but more so on a, um, on a one-to-one basis. This is the camp in general. Um, at, you know, you find that shortly after his arrival there, one of the capos broke two of Fleck's ribs by, by stomping on him. And he enters into the camp hospital. He's, he's half conscious. And in the end, they are housed in barracks 20, the uh, hospital barracks. And they worked in the infamous confines of block number 10, which is the medical block in Auschwitz 1. And Fleck witnessed terrible occurrences from within that block while he and other scientists are carrying out experiments at uh, improving people's blood supply for frontline troops. And all these results are sent back to Joachim Murugovsky, the head of the SS Hygiene Institute in Berlin, for uh, approval analysis. Um, But the main vaccine production plans keep on getting delayed. And then you have British bombers who destroyed his headquarters in Berlin in 42. So Murugovsky decides to move everything to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany, thinking that Allied bombs would not fall there, which was correct. And the question now was, what kind of vaccine are they going to try and make? So Vigel had used lice but there was no way they were going to allow millions of lice into a concentration camp because the SS are terrified of lice and they would have to be working alongside these Jewish scientists. There's another method which was produced within eggs of chickens that also wouldn't have happened because uh, the civilians and the concentration camp inmates couldn't be trusted not to consume the chickens. It just would never have happened. So in December 42, he decides to opt for a third type of typhus vaccine, which had been developed at the Pasteur Institute, produced from bacteria grown in the lungs of rabbits. And now it's a, a little technical, but the main point uh, that we need to understand is that the chosen process was very complex. And um, Murugovsky's deputy, a guy by the name of Dr. Erwin Dingschuler, begins putting together the scientists. You know, there were plenty of doctors at Buchenwald. In fact, there were people who posed as doctors to save their skins. At one stage, an inmate remarked that he had a foot injury and was operated on by a mechanic and a butcher. Um, so you've got um, a guy called Willy Jelinek, who is a bright young Austrian pastry chef, and he is in charge of the tubercular ward for a while in Buchenwald. You have a guy called 
um, August Kohn, who was a former Jewish communist labor leader. He is rescued from a death sentence and he's in charge of the rabbits. And Ding Schuler did find one doctor with experience with infectious disease. Um, and this doctor had spent his first year in Buchenwald working with a pick and shovel um, in the roads. He was, though, a dedicated physician and he treated whoever he could within the camp. So, um, August 10th, 1943, Ding Schuler opens Block 50. But because, as I mentioned, the production of the vaccine was much more intricate, much harder than the Nazis assumed, and was well beyond the technical know-how of Ding Schuller, so they produce a vaccine to the best of their ability, and their group has a baker, a physicist, a politician, a gym coach, you know, to get the results. So you think about COVID, this has been quite optimistic, that this is a war. And this is... Some would say that's how the COVID vaccine was also created, by a group like that. Right. Uh, but here you have, in the middle of a concentration camp, there is no allowance for failure. And he wanted and he needed tangible results. Not only that, but they are working... They've got a 70-page German instruction manual, which is translated from the Pasteur Institute's papers, presumably in French... And, you know, the recipe was not exactly for the faint of heart. You had to transmit the typhus bacteria through four different animals because normally typhus only grows in lice and in people. And it had to be modified. Blood was taken originally from prisoners who had typhus in block 46. These were inmates that Ding Schuller purposely infected so they could be sort of reservoirs for the bacteria. And their blood is taken into guinea pigs and transferred into another animal and into rabbits. But basically, if the process succeeds, then one single rabbit can provide enough bacteria to make a vaccine for 100 people. So you're saying in a concentration camp, Jews are laboring to save the lives of German soldiers and they're being commanded by Nazi doctors. Yes, exactly. As you say. And the first samples are produced in December 43. Ding Schuller tells his assistant, if it doesn't work, I'm going to commit suicide. It didn't work. Uh, but rather than killing himself, he simply fakes the results. And it's at this point that the SS remembers Ludwig Fleck. And they bring him by car from Auschwitz to Block 15 Buchenwald. Fleck was the only one in the group who understood bacteriology. And when he gets there, he realizes there's an enormous error being made by these other scientists. The particles that they'd identified as uh, typhus antigen were actually simply uh, white blood cells of a rabbit. And he tells his colleagues. And the decision is taken to keep it quiet, because if the Nazis think that they can't do the job, they're going to kill them all. But with Fleck's help, they are eventually able to make a real vaccine. And then the idea is born. The Jews in Block 50 begin one of the most effective and incredible, but least known deceptions of World War II. For 16 months, working under the noses of their Nazi overseers, in particular Ding Schuller, who Fleck described as a Dummkopf, <laughs> Fleck produces two types of vaccines. One that was a fake and had no value and is sent to the front for the German soldiers. 
And the second one, which did work and was much harder to produce, even in small quantities, and was used to inoculate hundreds of Jews in the camp who'd been condemned to death, as well as others. They, they used the typhus itself to save lives. There was a, a group of British spies who were about to be shot in Buchenwald. Some of them were rescued by being sent to the typhus ward, and it was then claimed that they had died, but they were saved through the vaccine. Wow. I've never, never heard of this. How do, how do we know about it at all? So, uh, one of the Nuremberg trials after the war, not the first sort of international war tribunal, but one of the subsequent ones, was the doctor's trial. And these people featured. Murugovsky, for instance, was sentenced to death and hanged in 1948. And it became apparent during the trial in 1947 that the Americans still had no idea that these vaccines were fake, that there were two types. They thought that the whole thing worked. Um, but Ding Schuller didn't have enough knowledge. He depended on the reports that the experts in Block 50 provided him. So he was able to send 30 or 40 litres of vaccine to Berlin. He was happy. Um, it was obviously enormously risky. The hazards were considerable. But they were not only saving Jewish lives, they were allowing the possible death of German soldiers. Yeah, but if they're if they're sending fake vaccines to the front, and German soldiers become ill with typhus, then then at some point they would have realised uh, how long could they keep up this uh, charade? Okay, well, listen. Firstly, some soldiers recovered even without the vaccine. That's always the case. It's not a hundred percent killer. Um, secondly, when or if German soldiers got sick and their commanders asked questions, they, uh, the, the, the Buchenwald scientists simply gave Ding Schuller samples of the real vaccine. He sends it to Berlin, uh, they test it on people and it works. So, you know. And thirdly, it's not unusual for soldiers to die even after receiving a vaccine. No version is 100% effective. You know, COVID, there was a second shot and a third shot. Uh, and, and there, the whole world is working, working towards an effective total vaccine. That's a good point. Um, it still took enormous courage to yes. do such a thing. And, and brazenness, because every day you're living the lie and risking your life. And it's a whole group. Uh, and if they find out, never mind what they're doing and sending the fake vaccines, but that they're using vaccine to save Jews in Buchenwald, that alone would get them killed. And it continued literally until the Americans liberated Buchenwald in, in April 45. And as I mentioned, the Americans believed that the vaccine was a real product. And the ultimate irony, it, this is so unbelievable that you couldn't have made it up. Just before the Nuremberg trials start, American medics vaccinated all the defendants in the trial with this Buchenwald rabbit lung vaccine, the fake one. <laughs> Um, and, and it was literally in the middle of the trials that these Nazi doctors learned that it was a fake and that they'd been duped for 18 months. You know, Murugovsky, early in his testimony, boasted that the vaccine produced at Buchenwald was the best we had in Germany. And when he find out this so-called doctor, right, who, who'd created enormous suffering in the concentration camp system, who'd, who'd provided supplies of Zyklon B, uh, who'd run a network of medical experiments, he is furious. Uh, um, and during the trial itself, 
mentions, you know, how could you have sent fake vaccines to soldiers? He accused the Jews of violating medical ethics. I, I mean, think about it. It's like insane. Um, so, you know, uh, it was a complete surprise. Ding Schuller was not part of the trial, but he killed himself in an American prison camp near Munich. And in his final letter, he asks his assistant to look out for his wife, who was living in the Soviet sector, and she dies in a hospital a year later of typhus. Wow. Right? What you mentioned earlier, what he said, uh, yes, that he was accusing the Jews of violating medical yeah. ethics. It just shows that like, it's a peek into the minds of the Nazis and the ideology. Totally different reality that they are living. Literally just like yeah. they would have believed that Jewish urine would not have worked for Aryans. Yeah. Which, which at the beginning of this series, we asked how could that people, how could they have come there? Right. And, and we don't know how it got to that point, but we realized they weren't looking at Jews as regular humans. When, was, when we talk about them, seeing them as subhumans, it's not just a legal definition. It's literally how a number how. of them viewed Jews. Right. Yep. And back in Poland, uh, Dr. Wiegel, who was Fleck's original mentor in Lvov, he had also manufactured the vaccine during the war. And as a result, he'd smuggled thousands of doses into the Jewish ghettos. He died in 1957. He was forgotten about and unrewarded by a communist regime that didn't care. What about Fleck? What happened to him? So he also comes back to Poland. He works as a professor of immunology in Warsaw. But in 1957, in that same year, when there is a wave of anti-Semitism in Poland, he and his wife emigrate to Israel to be with their son, who had already gone there in 48. And he spends the last years of his life working in the secretive Israeli biological weapons facility at uh, Nestsiona. And he died in 1961. And the epidemiology building at the research center carries his name, I believe, to this day. Wow, what a fascinating story. Because you sometimes wonder where was the, I'm sure there were many stories of the Yiddish cop throughout the Holocaust of trying to trick and defy the Nazis the best they can. But you said you're going to, you have another couple of stories of us. Two more, two more. So one is another medical one, but this is brief, this time in Italy. So Italy was an ally of Nazi Germany and created anti-Semitic laws, including, you know, loss of civil status. Uh, so Jewish physicians, uh, dentists, lawyers could only practice amongst Jews. Jews, for instance, couldn't own radios. But very significantly, unlike other Nazi allied or Nazi occupied countries, there were no deportations or concentration camps for Italian Jews and the Italians around the country, not the Germans. But in mid-43, the Italians surrendered to the Allies, and at that point, the Wehrmacht takes over direct control of northern Italy. I mean, anywhere from Rome upwards. And within a month of this German occupation, in September 43, the Jews of Rome are targeted, and the area of the former Jewish ghetto of Rome is raided. This is in October 43. 1,200 Jews were deported to Auschwitz, only 15 of them survived. And this area, the former ghetto of Rome, is located near the Tiber River. And it's very close to the bridge which leads to the Fatabene Fratelli Hospital. 
Um, the hospital has been there for 400 years by that point and is considered extraterritorial. It's exempt from Italian law because it'd been purchased from the Kingdom of Italy and it belongs to one of the sort of Catholic church orders. The head of the hospital is an avowed anti-fascist and he only accepted the job at that particular hospital because it's considered private and doesn't require its employees to belong to the fascist party. And even before October 43, at the hospital, Borromeo, the uh, doctor, hired many physicians who had been discriminated against by the regime, including Dr. Vittorio Sacerdotti, who is a Jewish doctor. And he allows him and he provides him with false papers. He allows him to work there, which means that in October 43, when Jews are fleeing Nazi raids on the ghetto, they look for shelter in the hospital. If it's on an island, then it could be easily searched. How, how do they hide them? Where? Where indeed. Okay, so uh, the location, first of all, of the hospital being near the ghetto is already enough to create suspicion. And secondly, there's nowhere to go, right? It's not a forest. It's not a labyrinth of streets. The only way that the hospital could hide a large number of Jews is in plain sight. And in fact, all the Jewish patients admitted to the hospital, it turns out, were suffering from a highly contagious and fatal disease called the K-syndrome. This new and uh, unfamiliar disease, whose uh, name evokes the Koch syndrome, which is TB, was fatal. And doctors were masked and gowned and gloved when they entered the Syndrome K isolation wards. The interesting thing is that K syndrome is an invention of Dr. Borromeo and Dr. Vict uh, Vittorio Sacerdotti. They made it up. And at the end of October, the Nazis carried out a search for Jews in the hospital. So Borromeo took them around the hospital and he describes in detail the terrible effects of the K-syndrome, the uh, morbo decay, the way it worked on its victims. And the uh, patients are told that the Nazis are here, you have to cough. You have to cough enough to make the Nazis afraid. And then Borromeo invites them to search the wards and the Nazis, um, you know, turned down the invitation. They left without further inquiry. Imagine the risk. I'm sure there were other doctors that were that weren't anti-fascist the way that that he was. Yeah, there were altogether. There were three doctors who kept the lie going, um, and in fact, uh, one of the patients saved was uh, Doctor Sacerdotti's cousin Luciana, who was only ten years old. Um, and yeah, all the doctors who played a part in the Syndrome K deception knew that they were risking their own lives. Incredible. The interesting thing is that nowadays there is a shul in that hospital. And when I took the JLE there over a Shabbos, we davened in that hospital building. Wow. Um, and then in 2004, Dr. Borromeo was named as one of the Hasidic Omasailim, one of the righteous Gentiles for his role in saving Jews during the Holocaust. Incredible. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I think we're, we're ready for the third. Okay. Uh, this is possibly the most unusual, but I'll leave it to you to decide. Very different to the previous two. Joseph Jonovici. When you say very different, uh, the other two are medical, I'm no, guessing. This is not, not at all. Right. So he is a Jew born in what is today in Romani Romania. He was orphaned at the time of the Kishinev pogrom of 1905. 
And he came to Paris at the age of 20. He is uh, equipped with little more than a, a genius for assessing the value and content of scrap metal, in particular tin. And he soon amasses a fortune as one of the leading dealers in France in scrap metal, which is a strategic commodity if you're building up an army and, and in wartime. So war breaks out. And Genovici had been selling scrap metal to the Germans for some time by then. And once the occupation began, these previous clients, they counted on his continued cooperation. The interesting thing is that at first, Genovici attempted unsuccessfully to enlist in the fight against the Germans in 39 during the six-month period between the invasion of Poland and the invasion of Western Europe. But then um, when the Germans come to town, he becomes a leading supplier of the Arbewehr, the espionage unit of the Wehrmacht, which is um, headquartered in the Hotel Lutetia in Paris. And he became quite wealthy during the war, supplying the Nazis with scrap metal with tin. Paris is liberated in August 44, and he is arrested in late 44 for having helped the Nazis, unsurprisingly. And here's where things get interesting. 27 people testify at this trial that he had saved their lives. In fact, he claims, and I quote, uh, well, this is a translation, I was intent on passing in their eyes as a major trafficker of wealth, all with the aim of camouflaging my actual activities as a resistance member. And therefore, my relationship with Rue Loristan, which is the Gestapo headquarters, was simply a cover. Well, it's expected he would say something like that. No, but for instance, he shows one of his earliest acts of resistance for which he was arrested by the Germans in 1941 was selling defective metals to them. He's imprisoned. And he said, you know, this is wartime sabotage can be shot for that. And he's only released uh, because of a number of well-placed bribes and the sort of the support of his German trading associates. And the way he put it is the the Germans were not naive in letting him go, merely comme tout le monde, like everybody, corruptible. Hmm. And he comes into contact with Henri Lafont and Pierre Bonny, who are the heads of the French Gestapo, Henri Laristan. Lafont is a man of great violence, but he's very receptive to bribes. And he gives Jonovici a batch of safe conduct passes, Ausweiser, uh, allowing for transit between uh, occupied and free France. And he issues Jonovici with a membership card as an auxiliary member of the Gestapo. And Genovici used these passes to rescue numerous individuals, as testified at his trial. And that's where the 27 come from. They say they'd been imprisoned by the Germans and released through his intervention. Then he points to his financing of a resistance network in the Paris Police Department. He spent considerable resources um, arming the resistance group that would launch the Battle of Paris. Uh, in other words, the liberation of the city. In fact, at one point, while supervising the transport of weapons, he is stopped by 
Germans, you know, a patrol. He produces his Gestapo card. He shouts Heil Hitler and carries on with his arm smuggling. <laughs> the irony. So he's shouting Heil Hitler while he's busy liberating Paris. Yeah, he used to say that he had liberated Paris before General Leclerc, which right. didn't go down too well. And he also, after the war, he leads the police to a farm on the 30th of August, 44, where these two Gestapo chiefs were hiding. And they're taken from there, they're put on trial, and they're executed in December, 44. And by the time the war is over, he is on such good terms with the police that he has his own office at the main uh, police station. Wow. So he really proved his innocence. There was no shadow of doubt. Yes. So this trial, you know, aiding the enemy is disbanded and he's released. But it was his misfortune to become the obsession of several enemies, uh, which was not unrelated to the fact that he was seen as a Jew. And now they attack the money he's made, a new trial. And by this trial's end, he's sentenced to five years in prison for economic collaboration and a series of extreme fines. And it is striking how stereotypically Jewish he is described as uh, during the trial. So, for instance, uh, a quote from uh, Le Monde on the 5th July 1949. The defendant is shrewd, without scruples, simultaneously greedy and generous, alert, amoral. This jovial, rotund little Israelite, ce petit Israelite, uh, with his Balkan accent and his fat lips, his affluence, his self-assurance, glibness, and a profound craftiness visible to the naked eye. Now, you have to realize this is a newspaper in Western Europe just after the Holocaust. Yeah. Describing a Jew in those terms. You know, charming people. Crazy. But Especially because his claim was that all the money he made was obviously to, to protect him, to protect right, his cover. Right. So he's very relaxed in court. You know, the judge says to him, you know, for four years, you never stopped doing business with the Germans. And he replies, well, listen, if I'd have let them proceed without doing business with them, they would have taken everything anyway, except this way they did it with paying and otherwise they do it without paying. And, you know, the judge says to him um, that uh, you obviously the only way you moved around is because you had German safe conduct passes to which Genovici answers if I'd have had English safe conduct passes, I wouldn't have got anywhere. So, you know, he's a, there's a give and take there in court. Um, and eventually in this trial, since neither Russia nor Romania recognized him as a citizen, it's now, you know, Iron Curtain days, a decision is taken to keep him under modified house arrest in a room in the hotel in the provincial town of Mont. And from that hotel room, Using just his telephone, he rebuilds his scrap metal empire and he became very popular in town. He was a benefactor. He's bankrolling the uh, the local soccer team. And, you know, they, they said about him that he could have been elected mayor of the town had he run for office. But eventually, living under virtual house arrest in one room in a small provincial town, despite making enough money through his business uh, to, you know, to pay the exorbitant fines that had been imposed on him by the French government, he has enough. And he now attempts to evade justice. And this time in 1957, he intends going to Israel. 
He gets himself a fake Moroccan passport and he goes via Geneva and Casablanca and he makes his way to Haifa where his sister lived. Uh, but there is, on his arrival, the backdrop of a delicate diplomatic situation in the wake of the Suez crisis of 56. And he is quite shamefully, really, jailed in Tel Aviv because of his forged passport and deported back to France. He arrives in Marseille in 1958 and he is jailed. Um, now, he's never convicted of any further crimes, but, you know, all the years in prison, the flights, the fines, the harassment in the press, it's too much, too much for him. So when he's released from prison in Marseille in 62, he returns to Clichy, where he had originally built his fortune, but he's now a ruined man. And he dies at the age of 60 in February 67. And at his funeral in the uh, Jewish cemetery of Bagneux, there are four anonymous individuals at a distance from the crowd who, after the main body of mourners had gone, discreetly deposited a wreath at his tombstone and they leave without saying a word. The wreath uh, bore the inscription, A notre camarade, to our friend, honneur de la police, uh, who was, you know, part of the police department, ses amis reconnaissants, um, his uh, grateful friends. This came from the non-Jewish police who remembered, you know, he'd liberated Paris. And it's interesting to consider that less than a month before Genovici was found guilty in July 49 of having profited from the Nazis whilst engaged in saving people's lives, that René Bousquet, the police chief of Vichy, France, the man behind the Veldiv raids, for instance, whose crime was implementing the Nazi final solution across an entire country, he is acquitted because of, you know, various resistance activities that he'd engaged in towards the end of the war. And injustice, therefore, is very much the case in France with Genovici, a person who not only defied the Nazis, but made money off them in the process. Wow. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. I think that brings our series to an end. For the listeners who, who got inspired, or at least uh, feel the Hurban a bit more after listening to these episodes, please feel free to share and to uh, obviously give the podcast of five stars to make it easily accessible to people and to forward it to and whoever it. they feel will benefit from hearing it yeah and uh, as usual any uh, feedback comments reviews questions can all be sent to podcast at jlead.org.uk we've been receiving a lot of feedback recently all been positive repairs you'd be pleased to know okay and uh, just to mention uh, we're now going to be taking a break for either two or three weeks but when we come back we will have a two-part series once again with rabbi tats this time on the maharal uh, in honor of his yard site who, which is towards the end of elol um and it will follow a similar pattern to that of the ramchal okay fantastic thank you very much thank you good night